Thank you for joining us. My name is Alan. I'm your host. And I have Brendan. Great to be here. Sa. Hey. And Ben. Excited to be on this first episode, Alan. Thanks for that, Ben. Yeah, it is our first episode. And let me set the scene for you. I remember a little while ago, we met up with Brendan and it was his going away. And a very strange thing happened to us, or a quirky thing, I should I should say, happened to us. And perhaps I'll let Sa tell the story. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, definitely. We need an origin story for this podcast. So here, when it all began, we were talking about what are the quirks we observe in the surrounding. And we thought this could be a brilliant topic for a podcast. And then we met a group of Hari Krishnas and they started offering us free books. And that's exactly when we the inspiration stuck and we're like, whoa, this is a quirky behavior. And we wonder why are they doing it? They were ha- having this pay-as-you-feel model. And then I ended up taking some books and I ended up paying them a certain amount of money, which I didn't intend to do before. And then it got us thinking, why did we behave that way in that circumstance? So what do you guys think? What happened there? The thing is, uh, I did actually have a look into that. And there's a strange phenomenon called reciprocity. And it's Mm. a process of exchanging things with other people in order to gain a mutual benefit. And the norm of reciprocity is is actually a social norm where if someone does something for you, you then feel obliged to return the favor. The reciprocity norm operates on a simple principle, right? So people tend to feel obligated to return favors after people do favors for them. Yeah, you're right. I I think that's how we have been behaving for centuries. And this was one of the reasons humans were able to evolve. So basically... I think there are two strategies. There is a cooperative strategy and a self-interest strategy. And we were only able to survive because of the cooperative strategy. Humans are social creatures. And this is the proof. We need each other in certain ways to build trust, to work together. And that's how our survival was possible. So definitely evolution favors reciprocity. And in old times, people used to live in tribes and The person who did not reciprocate in kind, they were ostracized from the society and eventually they were thought to be dead in the society and they eventually died because of that. So it's a big, deep-rooted instinct of humans to reciprocate. Yeah, that's a good point that you raise there, Sar, because it's about natural selection where only those behaviors that increase our own chances of survival and reproductive success are the ones that evolve. So... In other words, taking care of others results in reciprocal care, thereby improving one's own chances of survival. See, what made me think, though, is that doesn't actually take into account the issue of cheating, like where one person doesn't reciprocate the altruistic behavior that they experienced from another. And what that suggests is that there is some cognitive effort used to determine the type of reciprocity that we exhibit in any given situation. And what I wanted to add here is is that the use of cognitive effort also opens the possibility that someone could use reciprocity as a form of persuasion to influence others to behave a certain way. In fact, reciprocity appears in Robert Caldini's book, Influence and the Power of Persuasion, as one of the six principles used to win people over. It's really interesting because I think reciprocity actually plays a huge part in normal society now as well, outside of, Alan, as you said, persuasion. 
So most religions and cultures actually have a take on reciprocity, which is known, you know, more generally as the golden rule, treating others essentially as one wants to be treated. Some religions you know, take this in a direct form, treat others as you want to be treated. Some take it in an indirect form, don't do to others what you don't want done to you. And then there's the empathetic form, which is sort of like karma. What you wish upon others, you generally wish upon yourself. And I think that's a really interesting take on reciprocity um, because it really looks at where it is and how ingrained it is around our society. The Golden Rule was also included in the Declaration Towards a Global Ethic, which was first endorsed by, in 1993 by more than 200 chosen reps from varying religions, most notably the 14th Dalai Lama. There is also many aspects of everyday life that includes elements of reciprocity. Think of things like, you know, taking samples from Costco because, you know, you might think that you'll buy it once you get the sample, getting tips in restaurants and also gift giving during Christmas or for birthdays. Oh, that's interesting, Brendan. Alan was talking about that book by Robert Caldani and I remember a section of it on reciprocal concession. And it's a negotiation tactic. So I'll explain how it works. Basically, the person offers an unreasonable ask and then you'll be going, oh, no way am I accepting that. But then they counter offer what they really want. And then you go, oh, since you've made a concession and you've made doing me a favor, I'm going to accept this offer. But technically, the person wanted that offer in the first place so they kind of offer something exaggerated initially and then they counter something less of what they want and then you go oh yeah i'll accept that and people find that this tactic increases i guess people's sales rates it in the sales and marketing section it's called the rejection then retreat uh, strategy tactic and like i said it, it works wonders i've i've also been a victim of this tactic as you guys know, I've been riding my bike a lot. So I've, I went to go buy a bike. I, I spoke to the saleswoman. She goes, you know, I can offer you this price. Can you accept it? I go, oh, you know, that's a bit steep. Can you give me a discount? She goes, all right, you know, I, I like you. I'm going to go at the back and I'm going to check what I can do. I'll ask my boss. So she offers me a lesser price. And she goes, you know, I can't go any less than that or I'll get fired. The boss is going to sack me. So, and then I felt obligated to accept that price. I go, yeah, all right. You know, you seem pretty cool. You've given me this price. So I accepted it. But when I bought the bike, I went home, I, sh I was showing off. I was doing some research, which I should have done the research uh, initially. She only offered me the retail price. So this tactic does work. And it's interesting to see, I guess, certain influence and tactics people use do you guys could you guys think of any other tactics that you know that people use yeah that's an interesting story ben because there are some principles actually in reciprocity and negotiations that make them more effective and what you highlighted in your example were essentially two of the three i could say and one of them is offer something exclusive which allows you to feel special in a way in that interaction with with the salesperson and also personalize the offer so what in other words make sure that they know it's from the salesperson and it's and it's very personalized between you and the salesperson and i think that one of the best demonstrations of how these points 
work was a series of studies that were conducted in restaurants. It was shown that there was a 23% increase in tips when the waiter provided a mint. They started to walk away from the table, then paused, turned back and said, for you nice people, here's an extra mint. And so, so the diners weren't only influenced by what was given, but also by how it was given. And so it showed how effective those factors were in using the principle of reciprocity to make sure that what they gave or what they provided you, Ben, was very personalized and unexpected. And so you really felt drawn to, to say, yes, I'll agree to that because it, it, you had a connection in, in a way with, with the salesperson. Yeah, so I guess this tactic can be used intentionally on people. So I guess people have got to look out for it. So if you think an offer sounds like a person is doing you a favor or you're rejecting a request that you feel that you feel guilty, you just got to ask yourself, are you being, you know, influenced by these tactics that these people are using? So you got to, if the request is genuine, if the person is being genuine, sometimes they disguise it like they're being genuine, like that uh, uh, lady sang the bike to me. She goes, oh, I'm doing you a favor and, you know, I might get fired. You, you go, oh, this could be genuine, but hopefully the audience out there can hear about this and they know uh, what kind of tactics are being used on them. They could be used on, you know, gift giving as well and they don't have to feel obligated to say yes to these people. I think what's really interesting, Ben, is that we have been speaking about intentional reciprocity, essentially using reciprocity as a tool to, say, sell things. But there's actually a huge part of our lives based on unintentional reciprocity. There are many decisions that we make in our day-to-day lives that are based on emotions, thoughts, and feelings that are foundations in unintentional reciprocity. A really good example of this is gift-giving on birthdays or other special events where we think that we need to give a gift to somebody because of our friendship or because we received a gift from somebody in the past, maybe like at our last birthday. I see this a lot in life when we go to birthdays or weddings. For birthdays, as I said before, we always tend to think back to what we were given on our birthdays and try and give something back of the same or similar value. It's sort of like the value of our friendship. And then further at weddings, you know, depending on how extravagant a wedding is, say they're at an expensive hall, they're going to give us expensive food, you tend to feel the need to actually give them an expensive gift. So not just give them a toaster or something, but actually give them, you know, huge money, or huge amounts of money or a more expensive sort of gift for that side of things. And I think what's really interesting is I was reading about what's called information asymmetry, and it's sort of in this gifting space how in many cases, we actually don't have the right information to determine how much value that we're going to receive from a gift. So say at Christmas, you know, you're going and meeting with all your family, you know, how much do you think that your mum is going to spend on a present for you? Or how much do you think your cousin is going to spend on a present for you? Because you don't know this, you actually get a lot of anxiety from trying to figure out what you want to give to them, because you actually don't know how much value they put on you know, your relationship with them and how much they're going to put into this gift. If you think about things like Kris Kringle or I guess Dirty Santa in some parts of the world, that's actually where you get around this information asymmetry as you actually define how much dollar value you're going to put on each gift. You might say everyone spent $20 or everyone spent $30. It removes actually a lot of that anxiety because you actually know how much you're going to spend, um, which is actually a really great way to get around sort of this information asymmetry um, in reciprocation. That's a really good point, Brendan. I always wonder about this 
network of indebtedness we owe to each other during uh, Christmas season. And uh, I wonder, is there any intention where we or when we do give a gift, are we doing it based on no expectations or are there always inherent expectation of receiving something back? As you described, there'll be discrepancy between how much the value of the gift was that was given to us and how much we are supposed to give. So that makes me wonder what's the difference between reciprocity and altruistic actions where you're not expecting anything out of it. So are there acts where you giving something to people in the society without expecting anything? And is that how reciprocity is different from altruism? That leads me to think that people who are doing altruistic actions are doing from a more internal drive of authenticity. And can we say that reciprocity is always authentic? Because suppose we go to the a restaurant and we know that if you give them money, we're going to receive something and the value is always decided. Then we know what we're supposed to expect for that value of money that we're giving them. I think this builds up to a bigger concept of how the world runs in terms of giving value and receiving value. I think um, you touch on a good point there, Saad. For it to be perceived as genuine, we have to have an added need for authenticity. And because a business runs the risk of being seen as inauthentic, if the gifts, rewards, or offers it gives its customers are construed as blatant attempts to solicit a specific response. So I think, you know, it occurs more today, more than ever. The principle of authenticity must go hand in hand with the principle of reciprocity, I believe. So let's be honest, deep down, we all know that a business, no matter how altruistic it portrays itself to be, is looking to make a sale or profit, you know. So we get that, right? So it's okay. Customers don't resent a business for doing what a business needs to do. However, customers do react negatively when a business outreach is clearly one-sided. So what marketers need to understand to want to give back is that it's often most potent when the recipient feels that the gesture is sincere in its attempt to thank or serve, to give honestly rather than to receive. So if you think in a general society, think about influence marketing. So Herbalife, for instance. And with Herbalife, I remember going to a party one time and these people were like super friendly with me, super friendly. They're like, they were talking to me, asking me, um, you know, for my social deets, all this sort of stuff. And they say, give them a call. So like, you know, and like after the party finished, they asked me to go and, you know, have lunch and meet them for lunch, etc. And I was like, wow, this, this is like super friendly. It was actually out of the ordinary friendly. And so when I went to, to the lunch to, to meet them, that's when they told me about Herbalife. Well, a Herbalife equivalent, you know, and I was like, oh my God. And, and, and so, you know, we really need to have that level of, of authenticity. Maybe Herbalife might work for some people, but certainly for me, I didn't. Re- I, I felt happy for them that they had found something that they were passionate about, but, you know, it wasn't for me. Oh, great story, Alan. <laughs> That's interesting. Authenticity is essential in gift giving, especially in the business and corporate world. We have seen if there is no authenticity associated, it could lead to... A- 
gift giving could be lead to briberies and corruptions in the corporate world. I won't name any uh, businesses, but we've heard of large businesses that have been associated with that. So it's it's interesting. We've even seen it like in the normal corporate old corporate culture, the whining and dining where you want someone's business or, you know, you want potential clients, you take them out to dinner and you kind of shout them and just try to win their business where, you know, it, it could lead to a bit of conflict of interest. So that's why I think um, a lot of businesses and I guess in, even in politics, there's this sort of like gifts and entertainment register for companies. So you can't accept gifts over a certain value because it could lead to, like I said, a conflict of interest. You know, you might be swayed to uh, help out certain parties or or customers or clients. So it's interesting how all this uh, gift giving and how we try to impress people. We, We take them out to breakfast, lunch, having the intent of building, you know, rapport and network to gain business favor. So we do it in the sort of corporate world, is getting all nice dressed up, going to dinner. So yeah, that's quite interesting. That actually makes me reflect, Ben, about some of my experiences a few years ago when I was in the dating scene. I just remember making a big effort to really dress well for each date, and I could definitely tell if they liked me back by the way they dressed and the way they acted as well. You can definitely see elements of reciprocity in that as well. This reminds me of my dating scene. This is uh, this is a confession, guys. I only express my liking towards a person if and when I know that they like me back. So this thing, I googled it up. It's called reciprocal liking. It's an action of uh, you start to actually feel the attraction towards someone only after becoming aware that the person likes you back. And this has been my savor of preventing myself from getting a heartbreak. Uh, but I feel that reciprocity is really important in any sorts of relationship building. Like it goes back to our initial point that it is essential to build that authenticity, to build that trust. And the entire commerce works because of relationships and because of reciprocity. I think it also plays a factor in our friendships. Like in friendship, you cannot never do a like for like uh, reciprocal act. You always have to give an advantage to the person. Otherwise, the friendship would not survive. You will always be, you know, a brick for a brick or I'm going to call him back if he calls me back. I don't think the friendship would survive that way. You have to go above and beyond the rule of reciprocity and give them that certain advantage that let me call them again and see if they are, they just didn't reply because they were busy or something. So, but it, I think it reflects in other uh, forms of relationships as well. So, where do you go above and beyond reciprocity in your relationships? I find that I I am more forgiving to, I guess, close friends and family instead of people that are not, I guess, like people, friends that I don't know that well. And I think that just comes to our behavior. So I think there's four ways that we um, accept these sort of our reciprocity behaviors. So the first one is... It's hardwired where we just reciprocate with anyone. So I guess kind of favors our close friends and family, uh, but it also favors non-close friends. But these other three ones kind of swings towards your close friends and family. So the second one I have here is minimal information. So it's um, attitudinal. So it's a limited information to reciprocate the favor back. And I guess friends that you haven't seen in a long time 
you kind of got, you don't have that much information, that connection. I guess with close friends and family, they're always in your vicinity. You know, you go, oh yeah, I remember when, you know, mum dropped me off at the airport. You know, sister it was minding my house when I was on holiday. So we kind of lean towards close family and friends in that second one. The third one is emotional base. This one, once again, close friends and family kind of gets that sort of like tick because basing it on emotions with say partners, you have positive emotions and you kind of spend more time with these certain people. So you kind of, I guess, invoke those sort of emotions. You had your highs, you shared your lows together. So you kind of swing towards them. And finally, it's calculated. Calculated is a way where you calculate based on the information you have do you want to reciprocate helping that person from the memory? So it's kind of like, oh, can this person reciprocate the favor back? It, it can even lead to uh, in businesses, but like with family and friends, I guess you want to, you know, you can rely on your close family and friends. So you, you have to calculate whether you reciprocate with them because you know that they'll return the favors because if you burn that bridge, you know, they're, they're not going to return it back in the future and I guess with close family and friends that's who you can rely on so it's been a great discussion on reciprocation it's starting off with this Harry Krishna I love it Ben I think um absolutely and it makes me think like I mentioned before around karma right so actually do you really think about karma when you're working with your friends and your friends have done something you know negative to you? Not really. But when you don't have that relationship, then you probably think something like karma will come get them, right? Um, so it's that calculated or that emotion-based reciprocity. All right. Over to our next topic. So um, I was reading the newspaper the other day and I saw that uh, it was Father's Day in the UK and Aldi's baby and toddler brand, Mamiya, uh, actually launched a competition to find the world's best dad joke on Father's Day. Over 2,700 entries were submitted and the winner was judged by stand-up comedian Mark Watson. This is the winning dad joke. I once hired a limo, but when it arrived, the guy driving it walked off. I said, excuse me, are you not going to drive me? The guy told me that the price didn't include a driver so I spent four hundred pounds on a limo and had nothing to chauffeur it. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what? <laughs> chauffeur uh, it? Is it it's chauffeur? so bad that uh, I kind of like it now. <laughs> what I actually love about dad jokes is that it's so hard to define what makes a dad joke. One online article that I read um, defined dad jokes as having no social commentary, no agenda no political material, and is really neutral and not meant to offend anyone or anything. And I love that definition. Hmm. I read similar things about uh, Yo Mama jokes, but Yo Mama jokes are intended to be offensive and like interrogatory in some sense towards your mom. It's all about your mama is so ugly, your mama is so fat, your mama is so thin, and and it goes on. And I wonder why do we have those category of jokes at the offensive? And I think it's a bit sexist, to be honest. Like, we always do your mama in a bad sense. But dad jokes are just neutral and sometimes not even funny. So, I, okay, this is my dad joke. Okay, I'm going to throw one out there. Someone sold all my lamps. You think I'll be upset. But actually, I'm delighted. 
So, yep, this is my dad joke for the day and I'll think of more as we go along. But I think I do it. But the reasons why I crack bad jokes uh, or I try to do it with my friends is to annoy them. Like I, I know that how the, the feeling of uneasiness that it gives you when you tell a bad joke. And I, I love that. Like I love to impart that feeling in my friends sometimes. And I wonder, do you guys do this as a form of annoying people? I know what you're talking about, sir. I haven't really done it. But the funny thing is about dad jokes is they're, they turn joking upside down. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's it's more of an anti-joke rather than a proper joke because, you know, not, not just because they're so horrendously bad, which, you know, you and Brendan obviously pointed out, but um, dad jokes are different in other ways of joking in their performance and delivery. Dad jokes actually seem to court failure and they present themselves as deliberately bad, deliberately uncool and deliberately anti-humor. There's there's no special kind of comedic performance or timing needed so anyone can tell a dad joke. The jokes aren't new, they're the easiest jokes to understand and it's unlikely that anyone will fail at getting them right. So it's like you, you really can't lose with a dad joke. Because a listener is meant to groan at what is obviously a bad joke, yet if yet if they do laugh, it's a bonus. And I, I and I think that what you're saying there is is like even though there's annoyance, that's still a win because you just say it that they everyone knows that it's bad. Everyone knows that it's you know, um, but if they get a laugh, then well, that, that's a win as well. It's it's almost like a win-win situation. And the funny thing is with dad jokes, looking into them, they often play with incongruity, largely through linguistics and wordplay rather than actual subject matter. And this is the reason why puns are a mainstay of the bad joke. So take this one, for example, ready? What's the best day to cook? I guess I know this one. It's Friday. <laughs> See? That's well, I love it. Duh. That's well. See, see what see what we did there. It's fry. That's F R Y <laughs> instead of F R I day. So, and and that's what that, that's what dad jokes do. Look, and and while puns can be clever, the language play found in dad jokes, as as this joke clearly has shown is is often excruciatingly bad because whilst most jokes rely on some semantic ambiguity dad jokes are the ones where the ambiguity is is completely obvious right so it's not totally clear why someone would want to be seen as telling a dad joke however some theorists believe that it may be tied to a similar feeling as dads reliving that little bit of perverse pleasure they received in causing their kids some embarrassment right and and this is probably why a dad joke is seen as successful even if it is met with a chorus of unappreciative groans like so i mean like you know with the joke that i just told it's everyone's like groaning like you know that's really anyway so it's often the teller of the dad joke who receives just as much enjoyment from telling of it as the recipient so i think that just building out on what you said sir um, about why the why you get so much joy in in telling a bad dad joke. It's great, great 
thematic. I think um, I want to go a bit off topic and actually you spoke about the benefits of dad jokes, but I actually want to talk about the benefits of jokes in general. And that's actually that laughter is actually super good for your health. So there's a lot of health factors when you're laughing. Um, you learn to laugh when you're a baby. You see a lot of babies, toddlers, you know, when they're three to six months old start, you know, smiling and laughing. And one of the real benefits of laughing is actually oxygen intake. Researchers at the University of Michigan have calculated that about 20 seconds of laughter is about as good for your lungs as three minutes spent on the rowing machine. And although laughter helps us to take in oxygen, it's actually not just about that. There's actually a huge amount of complex muscles in our face, around our eyes, head and shoulders that is used when our laughing, uh, that, that is used when we are laughing. And it helps develop those muscles and gain those upper body strengths. So there's actually these huge benefits to, you know, jokes and laughing as a, as a whole. There's also some biological benefits. So Dr. Lee Burke of the Loma University in California actually found from her research in the 70s that laughing actually helps reduce our stress hormones. So it decreases your stress hormones, hormones more rapidly than if you aren't laughing or smiling or doing something that's humorous. Um, and that's that's fantastic, right? It's, there's actually so many benefits from actually laughing. Speaking about benefits and for laughing in general, Brennan, that there's also a condition with regards to humour. Well, not humour itself, but it, it's interesting. I never even knew that there was like a psychological condition and it's called Witzelsel. And I think that's German. Anyone who's German, please, you know, um, forgive my pronunciation, but Witzelsel is defined as a set of rare neurological symptoms characterised by a tendency to make puns or tell inappropriate jokes in socially, in socially inappropriate situations. Could you imagine that? I never even knew that. So people suffering from Witzelsucht often have an altered sense of humour and find it difficult to fully interpret a joke's content. However, they can recognise the importance of the form of a joke. So, for example, patients understand the importance of surprise in humour. However, once they have registered this surprise, they can't connect the punchline to the body of the joke to fully appreciate the true humour behind it. So to better understand what this feels like, right, let's look at the complex processing required to understand the following joke. So how do you make a Venetian blind? Poke him in the eye. Okay, 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 okay. okay. Let's break let's let's break this down. Let's let's break this down. Okay. All right. So in the blink of an eye, right, what you did there, your brain had to unscramble the incongruity contained in the punchline. You needed to grasp the semantic association in the words Venetian blind to grasp the double meaning, which was then followed by an element of surprise as you realize the twist in the joke. So people suffering from Witzelsucht can't make that association between the punchline to the joke, so they don't actually show any emotional reaction to humor, whether it's produced by themselves or others. So even when a patient under understands that a joke is funny, they don't actually respond with laughter or even a smile. And Witzelsucht is extremely rare. And whilst any neurological disorder is certainly nothing to laugh about, it should at least provide you with an appreciation of what our brains need to do in order to find ourselves like lolling by another person's joke or laughing out loud by another person's joke. Even though we love to roll our eyes in response to a dare joke, deep down, I think 
there's a soft spot for them because of their simplicity and their inability inability to offend. And I think, you know, for me, my, my in this way, I believe that the dad joke is equally hated and loved at the same time. And I think this is evident in a popular series on YouTube where contestants would tell dad jokes to each other and the first person to laugh loses. And and I remember one episode where they had like Will Farrell and Mark Wahlberg as contestants and it's got over 35 million views and and recently Ryan Reynolds also appeared on the show. So what what I'm what I'm thinking here is that you know perhaps dad jokes and the tellers of them should be applauded for their courage to be seen as messengers of such woeful word plays whilst at the same time providing relief from the complex cognitive functions of everyday modern life. What do you think? Absolutely, Alan. You got to applaud people that tell dad jokes. Even not even dads tell jokes now. You know, random people are telling dad jokes. People are gravitating to people that tell dad jokes. It's just that people can, you know, relate. They can have a people that tell dad jokes can laugh at their own expense. They're not taken too seriously. The jokes are usually PG rated. So they don't go into those taboo areas. So it's kind of a great audience and. Like you said, I think we've mentioned it before. If the joke doesn't go that well, there's all these groans and moans, but which is kind of funny in its own way. So I, I do applaud people that tell dad jokes, even in certain conditions that we, we did mention. Like we said, laughter can be beneficial for your health. So dad jokes are so relatable, and we've all grown up with them. Um, we've all we've all had that, uh, I guess, father figure that tells jokes. So in the spirit of, I guess. You know, telling dad jokes. I like to end on telling a dad joke. You guys ready? All right. All right. Hit me. Yeah. When's the worst time to go to the dentist? So no. When? Two thirty. Two. Ah. All right, mate. <laughs> you deserve. Bad. I'm sorry. You... All right, you guys go. You guys go. You guys tell Dad. You go. deserve one back. So, one thing I can't deal with is a deck of cards glued together. Because he can't deal. He can't deal with it. That's it. That, that, that was oh, bad. That was pretty bad. That's bad. Yeah. No, because he's. You have to listen to the stuff. Yeah. All right. My one. My one is why didn't the skeleton climb the mountain? He didn't have the guts. Well, <laughs> oh, I'm afraid for the calendar. Uh, its days are numbered. <laughs> okay, and the next one, I since you talked about calendar, I, I love the way the Earth revolves or rotates because it makes my day. <laughs> it does. Because uh, he the, the the Earth revolving makes your day. Yeah, look, like um, it causes you to have a day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> Let's um, in that there. <laughs> okay, well, that's it. Thanks, thanks a lot for everyone for for listening today.